take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is one of those Old Testament prophets, and you'll find his book sandwiched in between Ezra and Esther, uh, not far past 2 Chronicles. And so find your place there as we begin a new uh, book study through the, the book of Nehemiah. As our kids are leaving, it reminds me of what usually takes place in our house anytime we tell our children to do something. Why? You ever heard that question before from your children? Why? I, I want you to go do this. Why? Matt, please clean your bedroom. Why can't I do it later? Emily, you need to take those toys upstairs. Well, why can't Johnny take those upstairs? It's always the why question. Sam, your curfew is 1030 tonight. His response, why so early? All my friends get to stay out till midnight. Well, my response would be, well, I guess now your curfew is 10 o'clock. So uh, if you want to keep talking, it's going to get shorter and shorter. But I'm sure all of this sounds familiar to us if you're a parent. Uh, you've heard the, the why question, the response, the rebuttal. And, and I've realized that as I get older, and I'll turn 40 in just a few months, and so I know that doesn't sound old to some of you. That sounds like something you'd love to go back to. But for me, I feel like it's like the end of the cliff, and we're about to just scale right off to the abyss. But uh, as I get older... I'm noticing in my life that, uh, that I'm starting to do things that as a teenager I said I would never do. You ever saw those things in your own life where, or hear those things that you're saying? You're like, I, I thought I would never do that, but I'm starting to sound like my dad or I'm starting to sound like my mom. And so I'm beginning to realize that in my life I'm beginning to say some of the things that I heard my dad and my mom say and things that I said I would never say back then. Because when my dad would tell me what to do or my mom told me to go do something, typically I would do what I just uh, illustrated. I would say, why? Why do I need to do that? Why do I need to back, be back then? And so their response typically was, because I said. And that used to drive me nuts. With that short, simple uh, statement, because I said. In my rebellious teenage years, I wanted to just ask him a, a follow-up question. Who said that you had authority to tell me what to do? What gives you? Who died and made you king? In other words, that's what I kind of wanted to say. So I always thought that I would never say the things that my dad and my mom said to me, but now as a dad of three kids, I'm finding myself on a daily basis saying multiple times on a daily basis, responding because I said. Do that because I said. And so when they ask that question, that's the best response I know. Case closed, because I said, think about it, I'm the parent, I said it, I know what's best for you, I love you, and therefore everything that I tell you to do ought to be obeyed, ought to be followed without any question. Amen, parents? That's the way it ought to be, that's the way it should be in our homes, because we know what's best, we love them, we care for them, we've lived longer than them, we know what's out there in front of them, and so the simple response, because I said so, ought to be enough. That ought to be enough for our parents and child relationships. It also ought to be enough for our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Savior, you see, what should be true in a parent-child relationship should be true in our relationship with God. Look at this statement by Oswald Chambers. He says, the best measure of spiritual life is not ecstasies, but obedience. 
See, in our spiritual lives, what we want to do is we want to live on the warm fuzzies. We want to have that warm fuzzy feeling, the tingling that goes through our, our, our blood or through our skin, over our skin as we worship and sing songs. I remember that, and I still sometimes experience those ecstasies, if you, want to, if you will. But I remember as a teenager listening to how our choir kind of started at my church and how they came in from different sides of the choir loft, and they intersected, and the music was always the same. And it always gave me this sense of warm fuzziness, this good feeling as we geared up to worship the Lord. But life, our spiritual life, can't be lived on ecstasies. It can't be lived in the realm of feelings. It has to be lived and fleshed out in the realm of obedience. That's what Sanders is saying here, or Chambers is saying here. Unfortunately, we have all got an obedience problem. So though obedience should be the typical response of our lives as followers of Jesus, as the children of God, our typical response, because we're sinners by nature, is that we will rebel. We'll ask why. We'll decide to go in our own direction, try to do it in our own way, and creates all kinds of controversies and consequences for us. And so we need to ask the question, what is sin? Because in the culture and the day in which we live, sometimes we don't know what sin is, even in the church. And so what is sin? Robert O'Bannon defined it this way. He said, sin is not misfortune. Sin is not error. Sin is not ignorance. Sin is a choice against what you know pleases God. Sin is you choosing to do something that displeases God. It's the same in your home. When you tell your children to go and to do something, then they go and do something otherwise. That is them choosing to do something that doesn't please you, and it's a sin. They've sinned against you. And so that's what it means for us to sin against God. Sin is a choice against what you want or what you know pleases God. And sin is what Adam and Eve committed there willingly as they rejected what God commanded them to do and what he commanded them not to do in the Garden of Eden. You remember the story there in Genesis, early part of Genesis, Genesis 2. God told them that you can have and, and enjoy everything in this garden, but there's one thing that's off limits to you. See that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That is something you shall not eat from. You can have everything else. And so we go to the next chapter, Genesis 3, the serpent comes. He begins to tempt Eve and Adam and saying, did God really say? Why don't you look at that tree? Why don't you eat of that tree? And Eve begins to, to somewhat quote back to the, to the serpent what God had said. And she says, He's not, he said not to touch it. He said not to eat it. And then he begins to twist the words of God around, and so Adam and Eve looked at that tree, saw that the fruit was good to eat, they partook of it, they did what displeased the Lord, thus sinned against God. And so they experienced the consequences that God told them would come if they ate from that tree, and that is shame and death. We see there in Genesis chapter 3 that as soon as they ate of that tree, they realized that there's something wrong with them physically. They didn't have any clothes on, so they took fig leaves, they sewed them together, and made coverings for themselves. So there was a shame in their life. But also there's death that took place. Not a physical death, or at least not immediately. But their spiritual walk with the Lord ceased to exist. So when God came walking in the garden that day, just as he did probably every day, instead of running to meet them like children do to their fathers when they come home from work, instead they're hiding behind the bushes and God is calling out to them, Adam, Eve, where are you? They're hiding from God. Shame and death entered the life of humanity. Here's something we need to understand about sin. It's probably something you've heard before. Sin will always carry you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. 
You see, on that day in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve thought that they could just take of this fruit, they could eat of it, and they could enjoy it, and there wouldn't be that strong consequence that God had warned them about. But sin always takes you further than you want to go. They didn't want to sever their relationship with the Lord. They wanted to have that and what the fruit offered. It'll cost you or keep you longer than you want to stay. They didn't want to live in the realm of sin for very long. They just wanted to kind of dip their toe in it and come back over to the Lord. It'll also cost you more than you're willing to pay. They weren't willing to put up what the demands of sin, and yet they had to because it cost them everything. Sin always leads one to a place of shame and disgrace. In fact, many times throughout the Bible, God warned his people to not stray from his word. He warned Adam here, that what I've been talking about in Genesis. He warned Israel through Moses and through the prophets, gave them commandments and, and a law to follow. And as the nation was preparing to enter the promised land, God spoke again through Moses. And he gave the people of Israel a very stern warning about following his word. Look at the screens with me in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God said this through Moses to the people. Verse 25, he says, when your father... When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over, to the, over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed." And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. God gave them a strong warning there through Moses. He says, if you'll keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. But if you fail to keep my commandments, judgment will soon follow. And we know that following the death of Moses and his predecessor, Joshua, soon after that, as we walked through the book of Judges last year, we know that the people of God quickly chased after the gods of the nations that were surrounding them. They chased the idols and the gods of those nations that they were supposed to drive out from the promised land. You see, the people of God, during the days of Judges and, and, and years to follow, they were determined to live life their own way. They wanted to have the blessings of God, but they wanted to live the way they chose to live. And so morality sank lower and lower. And what we see in the scriptures is that the activity of God among his people began to dwindle more and more with each new generation. Thankfully, revival came to the people of Israel. I'm sort of giving you a history lesson if you haven't figured it out yet. But revival came to the people of God. Not long after the judges, you go to 1 Samuel and you see this young man begin to grow up, become this priest and a prophet to the people of God. His name is Samuel. And God used Samuel to revive the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel. And through Samuel, we have King David who now takes the throne of Israel as this great, wonderful, godly king, a man who fears the Lord, who shuns evil, man after the heart of God. And so revival comes to the people of God. But after David and Samuel pass from the scene, we begin to see a, 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 a resurgence of godlessness, a resurgence of disobedience in the life of Israel. And so morality deteriorated, spirituality deteriorated. God began to send prophet after prophet to his people to warn them, to call them back to himself. Prophets like Amos and Micah and Zephaniah and Hosea are just four of those prophets that God used to, to warn the people, to call the people back to obedience. In fact, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, 
the prophet said this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And then the next few verses, God begins to speak through Hosea about these people. And then in verse 7, he says, The more they increase, that's Israel, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. You see, what God had said through Moses back in Deuteronomy 4 is now really going to come to fruition as the people of God are going to experience the wrath and the judgment of a holy God to a people who have walked away from him. He's going to judge their sin. He says, you have been glorious in this land that I've given you. You've lived in this luxuriousness, but now I'm going to turn your glory into shame. Now I'm going to judge your sin. And so he pronounced a judgment upon his people through the prophets. And we know through the word of God, through history, that Israel and Judah both were conquered and carried off into exile because of their rebellion. The Bible tells us that in 722 B.C., if Syria defeated the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes that we know of as Israel, and carried them off, they never formally returned to the promised land. And their brothers, Judah and Benjamin, didn't learn from their mistakes. And in 586 B.C., Babylon came in and finally conquered the people of God there in Jerusalem and carried them off into exile, took them to Babylon. And there for 70 years they lived in judgment, in exile, away from their homeland, away from the presence of God symbolically. So they were removed from the land and judged. But the wonderful thing about the Bible is that anytime you see judgment, you also usually see on the back end of that judgment a little word in the English, three-letter word, that is but. But God did. But God spoke. But God Acted. And so what we see the exile period, this seven years of judgment, as God is judging his people, and rightly so, he never forsook them. He never forgot them. He continued to reach out to them through prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. And he used them to lead the people back to a place of faithfulness. Daniel was used by God to bring a sense of understanding to these 70 years of shame because there were children being born in exile. They had never known the promised land. They had heard stories, and so they're trying to make sense. What is this all about? Why are we in exile? Why are we not back in the homeland? Or should we ever even go back to the homeland? Because all I know is Babylon. All I know is captivity. So Daniel is used by God to make sense of these seven years of shame and the reason that they were in exile. Daniel chapter 9. Let me read verses 7 and 8 to you. The Bible says, to you, O Lord, this is Daniel speaking, he's praying back to the Lord. He says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you you. Daniel was confessing the sin of his people. Daniel was confessing his own sin. He's saying the reason we're in exile is because of our shameful state. It's because of what we've done and we've rebelled against you. The Bible tells us that when the 70 years of exile concluded, God began to bring his covenant people back to the people or back to the promised land, just like Jeremiah had prophesied. This uh, return to the promised land came in waves. And the first wave of exiles who returned was led by a man by the name of Sheshbazar and and Zerubbabel, who was a priest there in 538 B.C. 
they rebuilt the altar. They began to restore uh, worship, the worship of Yahweh. They began to rebuild the temple and finally did rebuild the temple. The second wave was led by a man named Ezra who came by order of King Artaxerxes I. Ezra was commanded by the king to return to Jerusalem and to restore true Yahweh worship. Uh, this was a political ploy. This was an opportunity for, for this pluralistic, pluralistic uh, leader of, of Persia to have the blessings of, uh, of Israel's God as well as the blessings of all the other gods that might have been out there. But for whatever reason, he sent Ezra back to restore worship in Jerusalem. The third way we find led by a man named Nehemiah. Thirteen years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem, he came to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So these men, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar, were used of God to lead the people of God back and out of their shame. As we come this morning to the book of Nehemiah, as we open this study in this great book, I want us to remember and to understand that Nehemiah's story is a timeless story. Nehemiah's story and the miracles that God did through his leadership and through his uh, uh, time there in Jerusalem is something that is timeless. We learn so much from the life and the testimony of Nehemiah. I mean, this great man and his story will deepen our understanding of God. He teaches us about the theology of God and who God is and how God operates. We will learn to grow in our love for Scripture. Here's a man who knew the Word of God, who knew the prophets. He loved the Word of God. He lived by the word of God. We see in Nehemiah a man who prayed, and so we will learn how to pray just like Nehemiah prayed. We'll see a man in, the, in this book that is a phenomenal leader, and so we will develop in our own leadership abilities as we learn and mimic the life and the leadership of Nehemiah. In fact, what we find in his leadership is the antithesis of the leadership that was present in the age of the judges. The age of the judges, it was everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. In Nehemiah's days, he led the people of God. It wasn't so much about what was right in Nehemiah's eyes. It was Nehemiah saying, let's do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Let's not do it our way. Let's do it God's way. And so let me this morning begin our time, open up this book in Nehemiah by reading the first three verses. And as we begin our journey here with Nehemiah, we're going to begin in Susa. We're going to begin in the luxurious surroundings of a Persian court. We're going to see a man who's a cupbearer to the king, who has access to the throne. And we're going to see Nehemiah learning the shameful state of his people back in Jerusalem. Look there in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th years, I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we open up this new book and learn from the life and the ministry of Nehemiah, as we learn how you brought your people back from exile, you began to restore worship, and you provided protection for them. Lord, I pray that you would take this time, even this morning as we talk about the shameful state of Judah and the situation there, God, I pray you'd help us to see and, and to bring application to our own lives, that Lord, many times we're in a shameful state, that we're walking a guilty distance, that we're living in disobedience, and rather than seeking to do things God's way and live God's way and raise our families in God's way, 
Lord, many times we're guilty of saying, I'll do it my way. I want to have both ends. I want to have my foot in the world and my foot in the Lord. God, I pray you speak to our hearts, reveal sin, draw us to repentance, bring us to a place of brokenness, and Lord, help us to live holy lives as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Nehemiah here inquires about the homeland. He wants to know about Jerusalem. What's going on back in the promised land? And so Han and I, this man and some others who had come to Susa, the winter uh, lodging for the king, it was the, the, the winter palace for uh, the king at this point, and so he comes there to, to maybe give a report. And so as Han and I and his brothers are there in Susa, Nehemiah inquires and asks about the conditions back at Jerusalem. In fact, we know as we read through this and as we read through Ezra and the history I've already given you that many people had survived through the exile and Nehemiah tells us here that many of them had escaped. They had escaped the exile. So what does that mean that they escaped? Well, Hananiah is not saying that they had fled Persia. That's not what that means at all. The idea of escaping was they saw uh, the exile, they saw the, the removement from their land as a shameful thing. And so for them to escape, to go back to the promised land was a good thing. And so that's, the, that's what this term means. That's the reference here. It is a way for him to refer to those who had returned to Jerusalem with Sheshbazar and Ezra. And so exile for the Jew was regarded as this great shame in their life. And so when they returned to the Holy Land, this was interpreted as escaping that shame. Ezra talks about it in Ezra 9. 9. Uh, verses 13 and 14. And so as Nehemiah is listening to the report from Hanani, he learns that his brethren are in a shameful state. Let me share with you three things about what we learn here from Nehemiah or about Nehemiah and this shameful state. And then I'm going to bring three applications because obviously we're looking back 2,500 years into history. And life today is not like life then. Uh, we have so many more things that they didn't have, and they live in such a different way than we live today. And so many times we may read uh, these narratives in the Old Testament and think, how in the world does this apply to my life? Well, Nehemiah applies greatly to our lives. So let me share three things about what's going on here with this shameful state and then bring some application this morning. First thing that we learn here is that sin and rebellion brought sin and degradation. I said that wrong. It's... I'm saying it right, but it's wrong on the screen. Sin and rebellion brought shame and disgrace. That's the first mistake I've made in I don't know how long. It's <laughs> the first mistake I've made since about 10 minutes ago. Sin and rebellion brought shame and disgrace. Think about sin for a second. Sin often seems and appears harmless and exciting, right? Sin boasts much often, oftentimes. Sin grabs our attention. It causes us to focus our attention from where it ought to be onto something that it shouldn't be. It pulls at our heart. Sin dazzles and it wows us without ever revealing the dangers that are lurking underneath the glitz and the glamour and the promises of something better. That's what sin does. That's how sin lures us in. That's how sin seduces us. And then it leaves us bewildered and it leaves us wanting something more. It leaves us with a bite that we never expected to come. That's what sin is and that's why sin operates. 
It's been said that all human sin, listen to this, seems so much worse in its consequences than in its intentions. Intentions. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. They're talking to this serpent, which today we would think that's pretty hard. Why would you talk to a serpent? But they're having this conversation with this serpent, and, and he's questioning the things of God, the words of God. And so I don't think Adam and Eve at that point ever had this intention to utterly rebel from God. They wanted to just kind of live in the both worlds. They wanted to live in both realms. They didn't see the consequences that were going to come. They couldn't fully comprehend them. And so sin is always a problem in every generation. Nehemiah understood why Judah had been carried away into exile. So as he's hearing this report, Nehemiah understands. He knows why they had been experiencing exile for the past 70 years. He knew the reason for their banishment. He knew the reason for the, for the, for the fact that they were a conquered people, that there no longer was this grand and, and incredible king on the throne of Israel like King David. He understood that there was a reason that that took place and and the reason that Jerusalem had been conquered and the walls had been torn down. He was familiar with the prophecies and the words of Ezekiel against Jerusalem. The only explanation for the shame and the disgrace of God's people was their own sin. See, they had brought it upon themselves. We read earlier in Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 28, where God said through Moses, if you walk away from me, judgment will come. And Daniel understood that. Or... uh, Daniel understood it, but also Nehemiah understood that about the people of God. And so like Adam and Eve, Israel, Judah, had chose to rebel against God's command and they sinned. Therefore, they brought shame and disgrace upon themselves. There was no one to blame but themselves. And today, anytime you choose to go against the word of God, you know what your sin does to you? It brings nothing but shame and disgrace. Nothing but shame and disgrace. Oh, it may tarry for a little bit, but it will come. You may not realize it initially, but it will come. Think about King David when he had that affair with Bathsheba and covered it up and murdered Bathsheba's husband and all of the things that happened there. You know how long King David, most scholars believe, lived with that sin without fooling the ramifications of its shame and disgrace? One year. For one year, King David was okay living secretly with that sin no one really knew about it he had covered it up pretty good oh sure some people knew about it but as the king they weren't going to say anything to jeopardize their lives or their situation so for one solid year king david is living in that shame and disgrace but there was a day coming when it came out of the closet and he was faced with the full brunt of his decisions sin and shame sin and rebellion always bring shame and disgrace. There's a second thing we learned from this passage, and that is genuine concern led to prompt action. I'm speaking here of Nehemiah. When you, when you seek to understand this passage and where Nehemiah is in his life situation and, and all the things that were going on there in Susa and in Persia, we need to understand that as we seek to understand what he's doing back in Jerusalem as we move through the text. So what is Nehemiah's life like there in Persia? His life was infinitely better than anyone's life back in Jerusalem. I mean, think of who Nehemiah is. He's a man who had a great career. He's a man who had a great salary. He's a man who had a place of prominence in the kingdom. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was the one, perhaps one of a very select few men in the kingdom of Persia who had the complete confidence of the king. He's the one who took the drink and tasted everything before it ever went to the king's mouth. 
And so if you're going to have somebody taste all your stuff to make sure it's not poison, you're going to actually believe in that person and trust that person. Nehemiah had influence. Nehemiah had uh, access. Nehemiah was in a wonderful place personally and financially. But even though Nehemiah had been born during the exile, had never lived in Jerusalem, never been to the promised land, he still had a deep concern for his people and for his home. And so that concern led to some prompt action by Nehemiah. And as soon as he learned the status of his people, what we see begin to unfold in the book is that he began to act. Genuine concern led to some prompt action. Number three, the third thing that we learn from Nehemiah and from the shameful state of Judah is this. The welfare of people was more important than the welfare of the city. Uh, here, look at the text. It says, Nehemiah says, And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. This is verse 2. And concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now here we learn some priorities in Nehemiah's life. In his mind, the Jewish remnant took precedence over Jerusalem, and his visitors agreed. See, as Nehemiah begins to inquire to Hananiah and the others, he's not asking about Jerusalem per se. He's asking about the people who are living in Jerusalem. Yeah, he's concerned about his city. Jerusalem is a big deal in in the worship and the life of, of the Israelites, of the Jews. But his primary concern was not on a city. It was on the people and the inhabitants of that city. And so in verse 3, they describe the people as being in great trouble and in great shame. We know that, that the economy there in Jerusalem was bad. The economy was poor. Food was scarce. Work was hard to find. They were still feeling, in other words, the effects of their sin. Because though they were back in the land, the land was not what it once was. It used to be a land of milk and honey, fruitful and multiplying and everything that they would ever want. Now, yes, they're back in the promised land, but it's not even their land. They're still conquered, a conquered people. They're still captives even in their homeland. So they're feeling the effects of their shame. And on top of that, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The gates had been destroyed by fire. So they were in danger of attacks by the enemies. Nehemiah's concern here and his desire was to rebuild the walls, not simply for the sake of Jerusalem and its glory. He was concerned about rebuilding the walls for the sake of the protection and the welfare of the people living within those walls. So his concern was about people, not about the city. So what do we learn from this personally and uh, from an application standpoint 2,500 years now into the future living in 2018? Let me give you three applications. Number one, learn from the past so that it does not become your future. Learn from the past so that it does not become your future. I mean, one of the reasons many people make New Year's resolutions is because you just lived a whole year where you might have blown it. So now you're walking into a new year. You can say, hey, I've got one year of experience under my belt. I I can grow from this and do something different in this new year. That's sort of the concept here. Learn from the past so that you don't become, so that it does not become your future. What, how does this relate to Nehemiah's and his day? Well, many of the people in the old, that we read about in the Old Testament, prior to the exile, never thought their sin would result in the destruction and the banishment of the land. Oh, perhaps they, would have, they believed, yes, God has said this, and this is going to happen, but they didn't believe it would happen in their generation. How do I know that? Because you and I do the same thing. 
We'll read the Word of God. We'll see where God's standard is. We'll see where His line is. And we will still get as close to that line and even step over that line and dance around over that line and maybe even move way in past that line. But we never think that the consequences that are promised and said by God would come. We don't really think it's going to happen to us or to our family or to our church or even to our nation. You see, these people had heard about God and how patient God had had dealt with the people of God and how he had withheld his judgment from their ancestors when he could have easily judged them. They had heard the stories of how even in the judgment of the wilderness wonders, you remember when the people of God, uh, those spies that were sent into the promised land, came back and all of them but two says, that's everything that God said it was, but we can't go into it. God judged that generation for 40 years. They wandered around in the desert. God judged them, but even in that judgment, he provided for them. He gave them food. He gave them water. The Bible tells us that their sandals never even wore out. He protected and provided for every need that they had during those wilderness wanderings. And perhaps the people of God understood the benevolence of the Lord and thought, yeah, God might have said it, but it's not going to happen to me. So they failed to learn from the past. They presumed upon the goodness, the forgiveness, the long-suffering, and the grace of God. And so his goodness and his long-suffering is why the Lord sent the prophets to warn the people. Time after time, they came speaking of impending judgment. He called them to repentance. He gave them opportunities to forsake their sin and to return to him. But they, like I just said, presumed upon his grace. They thought, surely it's not going to happen to me. Surely it's not going to happen in my generation. Perhaps they thought God was too loving of a God to judge their sin. Sometimes people will argue against the, the God of the Bible here. They say, if a God loves us, then he will never send anybody to hell. Yeah, absolutely, he won't send anybody to hell. You'll send yourself to hell because in your sin you're already condemned because you've rebelled against God. You've chosen to, to go against his word, his commands. So he, did, he doesn't have to. It's the simple consequences of your own sin. But people will choose to re- get, reject God thinking that, sure, if he's loving then he won't do that. But a loving God always keeps his word. So today, we need to learn from the past so that it does not become our future. We need to learn from the, from the past and the story of these Jews and how they walked away from God. We need to see God's judgment there and yet also God's grace there and heed that into our own lives. Because the truth is God will and does judge sin. And in fact, he already has judged our sin. Like I said, if you are apart from Christ, you are condemned already. You are sin. As a sinner, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. As a follower of Jesus, sometimes we think we can get away with sin. We think, sure, I've experienced the grace of God. I've experienced the forgiveness of God. And so God loves me. I'm a child of God. And I can ask for forgiveness. Uh, there will be a time where I can repent of that sin and you're presuming upon grace and you think that, that you can keep those things covered up or you can keep those things bottled in. But I love the, what the word there in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. The Bible says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Learn from the past before it becomes your future. Number two, we learn from Nehemiah and his heart here to look after the welfare of others. Nehemiah's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about others. And so like Nehemiah, who was concerned about his countrymen, we should be deeply concerned when we see other people struggling in their lives. It should bother you as a Christ follower to see people in need. It should bother you as a Christ follower to see your brother and sister in Christ living in sin. 
the other day I was reading, most of us are reading through the Bible this year, and so I was reading in Genesis chapter 4 with Abel. And Abel, you know, rose up and killed his brother, but uh, right after that, the Lord came and says, where's Abel? And, or where's, where, yeah, where's Abel? And Cain's response was, I'm not my brother's keeper, how do I know? That's the first sass that you see in all the Bible. Can you imagine sassing back to the Lord? And that's what, Abel, or that's what Cain did. He says, I'm not my brother's keeper, but the reality is, we are our brother's keeper. We ought to be concerned about the, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living and walking in sin. It ought to concern and it ought to grip our hearts when we see brothers and sisters struggling financially, struggling relationally, whatever struggles they're going through. It ought to do something within us that spurs us to step out and to take action in their lives and for their welfare. Your heart ought to be gripped when you see needs. There's a third application And it flows right out of the second application. That is, hold material things in this life loosely. Hold material things in this life loosely. I've discovered, and I think all of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, have discovered that prosperity and prominence have a tendency to create blindness in us. What do I mean by that? I mean this. That in our affluence, we can become so enamored with the things that we have and the good things that we have and the blessings that we have and the, the, the lack of need in our life that we think that everyone else is like that too. And we're just, it's not that we're uh, willfully or purposefully blinding ourselves or putting blinders on so we don't see the needs of people around us. We're just so enamored with what we have in our situation that we think everyone else is as affluent as us. We think everyone else's life is as good as ours. And so perhaps you're sitting there thinking this morning, well, my life's not wonderful. Well, that's, I'm sorry for that. But so many people in America, their life is wonderful, relatively speaking. I understand that all of us have our struggles. All of us have our difficulties. But relatively speaking, we've got it pretty good in America. We do. If you've ever been through a third world country, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go over there and you come back with a different perspective. One of the reasons I love to take people, uh, first-time folks on the mission field, to take them to a third-world context is because the blinders sort of come off. I remember one of the first times I came back from Africa. And I'd been over there in Uganda and I'd been preaching and, and ministering in these little huts. And, and I'm going into a pastor's home and he's got a dirt floor and he's, his wife's cooking on a fire outside and their kids have no clothes on. And I come back and I sit in my house in Alabama and I look at my crown molding, my hardwood floors and all of the affluence of American uh, society. And I just didn't know what to do about it for a couple weeks. I was dumbfounded. Unfortunately, that begins to wear off after a while. You begin to put those blinders back on. And you forget that everyone else in this world is not as affluent and well-off as you are. And so when we think about the welfare of others, we need to see that God gives us things and, and blesses us with things. And we need to live with those things loosely held in our hands. So we're blinded because of our affluence. Secondly, um, the second reason we become blinded is because prosperity causes or can cause a person to, to no longer care or to be concerned about those who are less fortunate. Sometimes what you'll fl- find in, in affluence is that people will actually take from others so that they can go up the ladder a little further. They will actually push someone down so they can climb up. And, and so this causes us to, to hold on to stuff and to hold on to things rather than being concerned about others and the welfare of other people. Nehemiah here, bringing it back to him and trying to understand what's going on here. Nehemiah was blessed with the very best that the Persian Empire had to offer. 
Again, he's the cupbearer to the king. He had a prominent and very influential position in the kingdom. And therefore, it's an amazing testimony to Nehemiah and to his faith that he began to inquire about those living in Jerusalem. But he didn't just ask the question, how are the boys back in Jerusalem? What's going on in their life? Nehemiah was actually concerned. He says, what's it like in Jerusalem? What's it like back in Judah? And then he actually began to take some actions. He began to put some, some, some wood to the fire. and He began to, to make sure that he could do something to benefit those back in Jerusalem. He took another step. You see, Nehemiah could have easily dismissed the plight there in his homeland because he had it good in, in Susa. He could have said, man, I'm sorry for how bad it is in, in Jerusalem. I'm sorry for our brethren who are struggling back there to even find food. I'm, str- I'm sorry that they're in threat of their lives because the walls are broken down and there are no gates because they've been burned with fire. I'm sorry for all of that, but I don't really know what I can do. And kind of dismissed it of that and began to live his life out in the luxuriousness of the Persian court, but that's not what Nehemiah did. See, he was willing to lay everything on the table for the Lord. He was willing to give up his comfort. He was willing to give up his stability in order to meet the needs of his brethren. And as we walk through the next 12 and a half chapters of Nehemiah, we're going to see some very dark days in this man's life. As his life is threatened, as his status is threatened, (coughs) even as the people of God want to rebel against his leadership because of the threats coming against them, he could have foregone all of that, and lived the rest of his days in a peaceful state back in Persia. But instead, he said, you know what? God's given me this, but it's not mine. I'm going to use it for his glory. I'm going to hold these things loosely, and I'm going to see how God can use this to the blessing, the benefit of the people of God, and for the glory of God. We need to live with palms up because the stuff that we own isn't ours to begin with. It belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah is a wonderful story. It's a story where we see God's faithfulness to his people. To a people that was constantly asking why. Why? Why do I need to do that? Why do I need to be faithful? Why do I need to read that? Why do I need to to do that? Why can't I go and kind of live the way I want? Why can't I worship those gods? Why can't I have 45 wives? Why can't I whatever? God should have, if it was me, if I was the Lord, I would have just wiped them all out, started over, and and did it all over again and did it better. But the Lord was gracious, the Lord was kind, the Lord was benevolent, and he worked through a man by the name of Nehemiah to restore his people. Why? That's the question that in our humanity we are always asking. Why does my allegiance have to be to Jesus alone? Why do I have to follow his word? Why can't I do what I want to do? We're just like the people of Israel. And the answer to that question is this, because he said. Remember earlier I said I hated that statement that my dad used to make? It's a real good statement. Why do we need to follow the Lord? Because he's the Lord. Why do we need to do what he said? Because he's the Lord and because he said it. He's our Lord, he's our Savior, he's our good Father who knows what is best. He loves us supremely and therefore we should obey him completely. But we've got a sin problem because it's a nature problem. And sin will always carry you further than you want to go. It will always 
cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin plays for keeps. It boasts of much but brings nothing but shame and disgrace in the long run. But on the other hand, if, we, if and when we obey God, what does it bring to us? It brings the blessings of God. It brings a sense of deep satisfaction within our hearts. It brings everything that God has promised. There's coming a day when every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, we'll stand before him and be held accountable for the way we've lived our lives as Christians. And on that day, you know what I want to hear more than anything else? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the promise that I've had for you. Enter into the joy of my presence. That's what I want to hear. I'd rather hear that than anything this world has to say. I'd rather hear the eternal ring of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, than anything temporary that this world has to offer. Nehemiah had that heart. The people of God lost that heart, but God in this story is beginning to bring them back to a place of brokenness and of repentance. They had a shameful state, but that shameful state will soon be gone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. For this wonderful story in the book of Nehemiah. God, I thank you for the grace that you exemplify here. It would have been so easy early on in this rebellion, this rebellious story that the whole Bible's about. It would have been so easy for you to just say, you know what? I'm finished. And wipe out the human race and create something perhaps totally different. A, a, a completely different creation. A completely different species and race. And yet, God, you chose not to do that. In your grace and in your love, you chose to redeem us from our sin. And God, I thank you for that. And I pray this morning for every believer, every follower of Jesus this morning, who for whatever reason may be living in a state of shame. Their choices, their sinful choices is today causing them to walk at a guilty distance. Their close fellowship with you is no longer there because of that sin. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that this morning they would begin to see that there's forgiveness at the cross. That there's restoration in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would simply confess that sin, forsake that sin, and receive that forgiveness into their life. Lord, this morning there may be someone, a man, woman, child, who's never even come to the place of giving their life to you. And Lord, they're today apart from Christ a sinner on their way to hell. And Lord, this is a time, this is an opportunity for them to have their eternal address changed from hell to heaven. So God, I pray you bring them to a place of confession of that sin, repentance of that sin. And Lord, may they embrace you as Savior and Lord today. Lord, thank you for loving us and for caring for us. Thank you for moving in our life. I thank you that, that no matter what choices we've made, God, we see over and over in Scripture that there's that phrase, but God. We may be walking into guilty distance, but God today is calling us back to Him. May that be true of us this morning. As we move into this time of invitation, Holy Spirit, speak in our hearts. Lord, we know that you're speaking, and I pray more than anything that you give us an ear that can hear and a heart that's willing to respond in the right way. So Lord, bless this time of invitation as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.